This is Being Human, I'm Richard Atherton. Jason Little, writer, coach, drummer. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. No, I'm delighted. <laughs> so you're in Toronto, right? Yes. And uh, are you, you always you grew up in Canada, you've always lived there? or? Yes, grew up in a, in a very small town, uh, about 300 people, and then moved up to Toronto about eh, 25 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So typical Canadian upbringing, pond hockey. <laughs> pond hockey, I've never heard that term, okay. Yeah, oh, and any, anywhere there's frozen, anywhere there's a frozen river, frozen stream, frozen pond, frozen lake, people just emerge out of the snow and ice and play hockey. And figure skate. Mostly hockey. <laughs> Small rural town, figure skating was frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> just the of you sort of twirling around with classical music blaring yeah. across the yeah. <laughs> that didn't happen. Nope, nope. The best skaters took it though. The 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 kids that were really good at skating, they 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 took figure skating because it really helps with hockey and balance and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't considered that. So with with hockey, you, yeah, you've got to be good at hockey, and you've got to be good at skating. Yep. So what's most important actually? Yeah, oh, the skating. Nowadays, skating for sure. Yeah, the game's different than what it used to be. And fighting. Not as much. No, it's I, a... That was what amazed me when I went to a... So I played ice hockey on video games, and then I went to Chicago when I was training. Like, a, So I started out as a management consultant with uh, what was then like Arthur Anderson, and they had a training center out in St. Charles in Chicago, and, and we went out there, and I saw my first ice hockey match. And... And we, we, we got to fight on the video games and they, they actually fought, right? They, they actually had a fight in the middle of the thing and the music played and I was like, oh, wow, this actually happened. Yep. <laughs> and it's, it's it, so, but that's less so now, right? Is that, is that yeah, it's, uh, uh, there used to be dedicated enforcers and, and uh, now the, the talent needs to come first. So there's, they're still fighting, but... You can't just have a guy who just fights. They have to be able to play nowadays, and it's um, uh, they change the rules to try and uh, have less fighting and stuff. But it's still there. It's just you know, it's interesting how uh, the players police the game, right? So even when you look at rules in our organizations and stuff like that, it's uh, there's still the unofficial in the white space ways that we keep order in our organizations, and it's. Sounds crazy to uh, do an analogy to hockey, but it's the same there. It's you know that there's a certain way that you need to behave despite what the rules are, and if you don't, there's a consequence. Which uh, okay, right? And there's a there's, so there's a kind of unwritten rules about the fights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you take a run at a star player, you better be ready for something, right? Because you just don't do that. It's like no one hit Gretzky in the '80s. He was the greatest player, and he had uh, Dave Semenko there, and you just knew you don't hit him. That's just the way it goes. There's no rule that says you can't, you're not allowed to body check Wayne Gretzky. But if you did body check the best player in the world who was like 140 pounds soaking wet, Dave was, uh, was, was there to, to, to back him up. <laughs> yeah. So, so where did you play? I know nothing about hockey, but now I'm interested. Front of defense or what? Uh, mostly goalie. Mostly goalie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And does that say something about your character? It probably does. Yeah, it probably does. Goalies are known for being a little bit nuts. Like, who wants to stand there and get a little hard puck 
shot at their head constantly. But uh, protector, uh, you know, and I was small as a kid too. So when I would play defense or forward, it would be pretty easy for anybody just to steamroll me or, or whatever. So goalie, I was pretty quick. I could move around a lot, and I just liked it. I like the focus that it brought. <clears throat> yeah. I used to play in goal as well. Not because I was small, but because I was very uncoordinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> big hands. Yeah. Goalie coming cool. worked. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, 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 okay. So you grew up small town, you played hockey in goal. Uh, and then, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so interested in your, your educational background. So you, so then mm. graduated high school, you went, you went to college or what happened? What? Yeah, I took electronic engineering okay. um, when I moved up here. So I took a year of computer programming um, at a local college mm. and uh, only took a year because it's, you know, first year of college, you don't, you don't go to school ever and you party a little bit more than you probably should. And uh, I figured, well, if I want to do something, I got to get out of this town. So uh, I moved up to Toronto where I didn't know anybody. And I uh, lived in a uh, basement apartment uh, with uh, two guys and uh, the one guy's daughter and um, took electronic engineering and then never went into electronic engineering, went into computer programming and IT. And um, uh, I did some uh, circuit board manufacturing, which was the job that I was doing. I was working midnights while I was in school. So I'd work from, you know, 11, 11 at night to seven in the morning, go home, sleep for a couple hours, then go to school. Wow. And, uh, and then after I graduated, I got into it, started doing, um, phone support and then desktop support and server support and then into programming. Right. Yeah. So that's 1993 to the year 2000, roughly. <laughs> it's about as short as it'll get. <laughs> that's but that's impressive. You funded your funded your way through college because is Canada like the states where you? Because in Britain it's highly subsidized. I mean, it's it's changed a bit recently, but um, it's still pretty subsidized, and and you don't come out with huge debts in the way you do in in the states. Where's Canada on that spectrum? Uh, when I was going to school, it was the same. So it was OSAP was the the name of the program, and it's a loan. It's basically a loan that you have to pay back. So people come out of school with a mortgage, basically. Uh, so, you know, I don't remember what the terms were, but it's fairly long. You pay monthly for 10 or 15 years or something like that. Uh, which, uh, I'm not sure that time is, is right, but it's basically like having a, a mortgage right out of school. Right. So that's what you, right? and then you've got all your living expenses cause they will, you apply basically like a loan and you say what program you're going to and what your expenses are. And then they tell you how much you get. So um, some students, most students back in my day would get an version. Um, and then everything else was go get a job. So pretty much everybody I went to school with all had jobs. Like maybe some had two or three just to pay for rent and, and food and stuff like that. So, wow. yeah. You've always been a worker. Yeah. Nowadays, I'm not sure what's different. Um, I know tuition is pretty expensive, but I don't, I don't know how all that OSAP stuff works today by comparison. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you <clears throat> must say we've got kind of similar stories in that I, I also did electronic engineering. I also didn't get a job in electronic engineering. <laughs> Became a programmer uh, for a while, 
then jumped out and ran a cabaret club for a while. Oh, wow. Then jumped back into and became a talent agent. Uh, yeah, that, those, those were a wild few years. And then and I went back into consulting and yeah, and I suppose some years after that, I eventually found my way to, to I suppose what we're going to talk about a little bit today and that's, um, and that's lean change management and, and your book. So, so you, you did the, the IT support. So, so tell me about, so, so you're famous for the, the book lean change management. Uh, and certainly we can, so we can talk about that. And so where were you in that journey when you first had the idea for the book or the genesis of all of that? Hmm. Um, part of the whole, I guess, if you want to call it a mindset or the mantra behind it was I always worked in the service industry. I mean, even through, you know, uh, jobs in the end of grade school and early high school was always in the service industry, either uh, being a line cook or being a waiter or, you know, cleaning warehouses, stuff like that. It's always been some type of service thing. So I think I just uh, developed that helper kind of attitude. And um, it was uh, the first enterprise uh, coaching gig that I had, which was pr- about 10 years ago or so, um, I think. And uh, I was in a screaming match with the, the quote unquote senior coach and a senior manager. So production blew up and the senior manager is the one who's on the hook for it. And it's the this production of a website or something. Like yeah. That, right? Yeah. Yeah. So big telecom and it's their, their consumer facing website that had a, um, a problem on it. And, uh, you know, there's 13 different divisions that have to contribute to getting something out into production. So he wants to implement a checklist in the, uh, the agile, um, software tool that basically right. says I've signed off on this for all the different departments. Uh, okay. And, uh, of course the senior coach and any left, leaning agile manifesto people will immediately see that as red flags, right? Oh, you can't do that. That's blaming and blah, blah, blah. But instead of um, coaching the person through it, uh, she, she, she kind of started yelling at him and he started yelling back like F bombs and all. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in the cube with this guy. She's on the phone right. at a different location. And I'm thinking, all right, I guess this is what agile coaching is all about is okay. telling your clients that they're idiots. So I thought, well, there's got to be, something more than just this agile stuff and after the we hung up um i told the guy i said well you seem like you really want to do this so i'll tell you, i'll put this up on the staging site you can check it out if it's something you want to roll out just let me know because we own the tool um so we had admin rights to be able to change stuff and i said well if you if you think this is going to solve the problem like you, you seem really passionate about it let's just do it and see what happens and i never heard anything about it again he just needed to blow off steam so you would think a senior coach would recognize that So that got me thinking about the whole uh, non-agile process part of change. And then I went to uh, AYE a few months later, which is Amplify Your Effectiveness, which is hosted by uh, Jerry Weinberg, Johanna Rothman, Esther Derby at the time, Steve Smith and Don Gray. And that totally opened uh, a thousand doors to the the world of change. So that's the inception of the ideas back then. And just for people who are not initiated with some of this language, so, I mean, there are people when I talk about Agile who are like, oh, so what you mean, like yoga? Like, yeah. Right? It, it has no meaning for them other than it's sort of original meaning in English. So, yeah. yeah what, what, so what the hell is an Agile coach and what's Agile? You know, how do you explain it to people, people who, for whom it has no special meaning? Yeah. Um, I, I will usually say something like it's it's a set it's a set of four values and twelve principles that help companies uh, deliver better stuff for their customers. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's all it's about better stuff, getting better stuff out of the door. That's how you would Yeah. Today's world we need to be more responsive and adaptive and it helps people get you know, products that will solve problems for customers to market sooner. Right. Okay. And and so so an agile coach is what? Somebody that helps facilitate a company moving towards that state. Okay. It's basically a consultant that specializes in agile. It's not no different than a consultant who specializes in SAP or any other discipline, okay. but agile coach sounds cooler than agile consultant. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, you're, you're an agile coach. You go, mm-hmm. you go on this AYE and mm-hmm. your effectiveness where you meet a mm-hmm. bunch of other coaches. Is that right? And then, and then you get opened up to these conversations about change. Yeah. Yeah. And there was everybody there. There were coaches, developers, testers, managers, a very wide mix of people, but people that were passionate about uh, um, bringing positive change. And one of the first, well, the first chapter of the book tells about the story about the first session I went to, um, which was about the Satir change model around how we're in the status quo. And then uh, some change happens, which is the foreign element. Mm -hmm. And then, um, uh, we descend into chaos. We hit the transforming idea where we start to make sense of this change. And then we go into practice and integration where we integrate this new change into our new status quo. Yeah. But he, he simulated that with a physical session and we almost got into a fight because we were, yeah, yeah. Cause we had to, uh, I was in the old status quo and we had to keep a person in the corner of a room. So we had to keep this person comfortable, maintain the status quo. And then the new status quo had to disrupt and try to bring that person to the other side of the room by creating some kind of change. And then there was a group of people who were chaos and they just had to go crazy and make noise. And, and um, we physically built a structure around this person. We went uh, around the hotel and we got tables and chairs and desks and curtains. And we tried to physically build a structure to keep them in and new status quo was pulling that stuff down and we were trying to put it back up. And then we started shoving each other. And within 10 minutes, uh, um, Steve Smith, who uh, was facilitating, had to stop the session. So the power of once you trigger a change, you can't control where it's going to go mm-hmm. has always stuck in my head. So from that very first experience 10 years ago, just set down the path of um, you, you can't manage and control change the way that most of the ideas tell us that you can. Okay. Um, you have to work in the white space, put guardrails in place, navigate things, enable the early adopters, uh, listen to the people we blame as resistors and hear their side of the story and have empathy for them. Uh, it's a lot more complex than just here's your eight steps towards change. Go create urgency as your checkbox and your governance. So um, a lot of that stuff influenced uh, the book and pretty much my style. Okay. And what would you say the main message of the book is? Uh, Build your own approach to change that's contextual for your organization. So the ideas are abstract enough that if you're in a more kind of controlling, you know, banking, telecom, big company, conservative type of culture, you know, culture hacking and experimentation probably won't be received very well. And if if you're taking that stance as the change person, you're just going to destroy your credibility. But you can't not do some of that stuff. You kind of have to find the line by pushing a little bit, but no one to pull back. Mm. And if you're in like a media company, yeah, you could probably do things that are a little bit crazy. You can experiment more. You can 
do more visualizations of the change. So it's sort of uh, understand all the dimensions and the ecosystem of change uh, and then try to tailor your approach for facilitating that where it's going to help you swim with the current of the organization instead of against it. Okay. So there's a couple of terms in there. So experiments and culture hacking. So mm. so experiments have, has a specific meaning in change and, and then maybe culture hacking. What's that? Yeah. Experiments. It's, it's, um, uh, you know, in, in the agile community in particular, you hear a lot of, we need to embrace uncertainty, mm. which is pretty frightening for people. So I like to ask people um, anytime I do a talk somewhere is who would leave right after this talk, go to the airport and go and then just fly there. And it usually scares the hell out of most people, but there's a few people that would actually do it. Mm. So instead of blindly embracing uncertainty, how, what do we do to reduce it? So experiments are what's a minimum action we can try to see if that's going to get us one small step in the right direction. Mm. Um, What's the visibility of the failure if it doesn't work? What's the risk of the failure? So try to think about uh, not just doing a change activity, but trying something out where you're not exactly sure, but you have a pretty good idea of where you want to go and then measure. Um, have some way of knowing if if it's going the right way. Right. And that's terrifying for some senior managers, isn't it? How, for sure. How do you sell that approach? Um, usually just by doing it. Um, and it depends on what your your stance of a chain uh, as a change person is too. So if you're taking more of a facilitation coaching stance, you're trying to have your client or the person you're coaching come up with the experiment uh, and then try to push their boundaries. So if you're coaching someone who's more conservative, you know their experiment might seem really tame and it's not going to be effective. So you can kind of poke them to to help them explore if they could do something a little more radical. Um, and, uh, you know, where, where is their personal safety in trying an experiment? <clears throat> um, one large financial client I worked for, the, um, uh, director of HR said, well, we can't really change anything about how we're doing this payroll project. Like we can't use agile practices or a different delivery model. I said, well, you can, but what's really the problem? And it basically came down to if he screws up payroll for 80,000 people, it's better if he does it the old way it's safer for him to screw up by following the mandated process than to try something new. So great. Then don't do it. Forget the change. I just will go somewhere else. I won't help you with this. I'll poke you, but ultimately it's that person's decision to do it. So trying to think about, it's like a teeter totter, right? Trying to find the right balance of how disruptive the organization will allow you to be when you should push and when you should kind of pull back and wait for the dust to settle. Oh, you haven't seen those things? Like the, the little, uh, yeah, the kids that they sit on either side and they go up and down oh, on the teeter? Like a seesaw. seesaw, yes, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, a teeter totter, okay. Yeah. All right. So work out where you're, the person you're working with is on the, on the seesaw, on the teeter totter. Yeah, yeah. It's all, always about balance. And culture hacking is just a more extreme version of experiments. So if you really need to shake the organization up, you have to do something drastic to uh, uh, reflect back the organization's behavior on itself. And then it will become aware uh, and it will fix itself, which is, you know, uh, a deep topic if you look at complexity models and systems thinking. Um, 
you can't change a system of people with a PowerPoint or a process model. You have to act on that system to watch it respond. And that's more extreme and less safe for people a lot of the times. What's the most extreme culture hack you've heard of or done? Um, the most extreme one that I've done is pretty tame, but in the organization I did it in was like a grenade, which was uh, people were being moved into an open working space and they were coming to us as the agile coaches to say that they weren't really comfortable with it instead of their managers. So we're thinking, well, why are they coming to us? We're not the ones doing this. We're just facilitating it. And I put up a big visible sign near the entry of this uh, open space working area that said, um, uh, here's some green sticky notes. So write down good things on green on this side and write bad things on red. And the whole red side was just littered with stuff. People hated it. So we made that problem visible to the organization. And the uh, the blowback to that was, you know, you're talking, it was pretty small. There was 20 managers and five directors, I think. And the amount of meetings we had, emergency meetings to fix this problem that we had made visible. And we, I got in a lot of trouble for doing that. But it was pretty tame. I'm like, why wouldn't you want people to be honest? I mean, they're, they're humans. They're not cogs in a wheel that you're sticking in a machine. And they're pissed off about being forced to do this. Go freaking talk to them. <laughs> like, don't sit in your offices and debate if you put the monitor for them in the right spot. You know, go see what's going on. They're freaking miserable. So that's the point we wanted to get across. And uh, so that hack was extreme. But when you look at what we actually did, it's pretty basic and tame. But in that environment, yeah, it was massive. Yeah, that reminds me of doing something similar, which was inspired by your book, where we took was working on a change initiative and we took the work that we were doing and we created a big public board, a big whiteboard, rolled it into the atrium area in this, in this company and put our faces up. Yeah. Who's, who's involved in this change. We had uh, all of the big things that we were working on. And then we had this box on your suggestions and it was, it was just filled with abuse, like overnight with people, you know, effing consultants and you're all clones and, yeah, just, wow. just a, a huge amount of abuse on this board. And the person I was working with was like, Richard, Richard, we've got to take this thing down. Come on, you know, why are you leaving it up? And I, I, I stuck to my guns and said, no, no, this is, this is actually great. You know, we're, we're lancing a boil here. We're, we're getting some feedback. Um, we're, we're being public about what we're doing. It's, it's better we get all this stuff out and address it than take the board away. Mm -hmm. uh, we left it for a few more days and, and eventually the, the graffiti, you know, we had to wipe it off a few times and then eventually it just stopped. Yeah. People, and then people started engaging with what we were doing and kind of realized that we were taking a different approach and we did want to go and talk to people about this stuff. Yeah. Wow. But that was, uh, yeah, that was your fault, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> it always is. Yeah, took that from the book. <laughs> Yeah, the, the cool thing is like so, somebody's got to do that activity to break the barrier down. Mm. I was in a workshop a few weeks ago, and uh, there were two people who I've known for forever. One of them is working as a coach in this organization, and the second one interviewed for them before they hired the first person. And she kind of went in, and they weren't ready to hear. They, they have a very similar coaching style. Um, and they weren't ready to hear the type of message that she gave them in the interview. 
so it didn't work out for her, but it paved the way for this other guy to come in with a very similar stance. Now they're, because, you know, she disrupted the place enough uh, for them to think about what they really wanted. And then the second person came in and it was a perfect fit. And, you know, she felt, obviously felt kind of bad for that. But then we had a conversation around somebody's got to break that barrier down. Somebody's got to disrupt something to pave the way. And, uh, you know, if you're a consultant, a lot of the times, if you're the first person in there, you get the blame for everything. doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you know, the, the change probably isn't going to work the first time and everybody's going to blame the consultant. And then the second, then you're going to get fired and the second wave is going to come in and they're going to be a little bit better. And then the third wave is going to be a lot better because now the client is primed and ready and they understand what they really want to do. So uh, a lot of the things in the book, especially with culture hacking, is to allow change agents to blow off steam because a lot of the times it's a pretty frustrating, stressful job. Right. So if you can kind of do a culture hacking session in private with some friends just to blow off some steam about all the dumb things you see, um, that's a great way to keep yourself sane. It reminds me of this idea of culture hacking. So I think of it on a grander scale. So what was the first music streaming service that the guy who helped set up Facebook launched and ended up oh, in trouble? Was it Napster? Napster, of course. Yeah, Napster, yeah. right? That yeah. was sacrificial. And now we have yep. Spotify. Yep. Sometimes it, it, so that for me is analogous with what we do as as change agents in organizations. Often we're, it, it, there's some sacrifice right? mm -hmm. initially. Um, yep. Yep. And then I think about some of the civil rights movements where these people, I mean, that people sacrifice their lives in some cases. So, yep. Yep. Okay. Is there anything you would rewrite about the book? <laughs> it's been out for, how has it been out now for? Years? Uh, the, the first version was out in 2012. And then the, the current one with the yellow cover was tw uh, end of 20 or October, 2014. So three and a half ish ish years for the, for the rewrite. Um, I, I'm not sure what I would change about it because, uh, it, it took a while to sort of find the groove of the people who need a message or need something like this to kind of move forward. Um, I guess a better way to explain that is I, I, I meet a lot of people in the quote unquote traditional change world, uh, and they tend to need a method or a model or a process to try something. Now that they've read the book that's very loose and unstructured, it sort of aligns with how they, they, they believe they work in the first place, but now it's okay because now there's social proof that there's a framework out there that allows them to work in a more agile way. Right. Um, so I had thought a few times around, maybe there should have been a little more frameworky structured thing in it, but I think that's where a lot of the, uh, allure to the book is that it's not a framework or a method or step-by-step. -step. Um, and the people who want to disrupt their organizations and make positive change, they just need the ideas. They don't need a step-by-step -step linear kind of model. And the people who need that aren't the audience anyway. Like they're not the people who would, who would probably read it anyway. Um, so, um, Hmm. I think the only thing I would have done differently would be more, more stories from uh, employees in the organization who were impacted by the change. 
because a lot of it was from the perspective of us as the change team and mostly me trying to be as unbiased as possible, which, which you can't really do. You see things through your own lens and that's the way it is. But if I would have picked up some, uh, uh, some, some better stories from employees about our style of how we operated, I think that's what I would have added. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Is it, as somebody I know who's an influencer of both of us, Dave Stoden, talks a lot about the importance of stories and narrative in, in change. Mm-hmm understanding people's stories making sense of people's stories mm-hmm. yeah as a as a place to start before mm-hmm. designing an intervention thinking about what to do yeah i saw somebody a workshop recently and they created a no it wasn't it was taken off off the lean change site your your site where the, a story wall had been created with images yes was that something you that you authored or no that's uh, uh sarah becca i hope i pronounced your last name right so she uh i've known her through the happy Melly network and uh, i can't remember how we got connected about this story but i said oh that sounds like a cool uh, cool story do you want a platform to tell it on um yeah so she wrote that post and did that kind of journey diagram and pictures and stuff which was pretty cool mm, no i love that I'm, let's we'll definitely put the link to that in the in the notes for the, for the show. Mm-hmm. It's like go back to cave person days, right? Where we painted on walls to tell stories. And it really sounds dumb. People go, oh my God, send this hippie back to Canada. But that, that's, all, that's how change works. It, will, it doesn't matter how advanced we get with AI and robots and whatever the future, everything in our organization is shaped through stories. Always has been, always will be. That's how groups of people communicate with each other. We tell stories, we share ideas, we are very visible, uh, visual creatures. So the more we can get our thoughts out onto a wall um, and visualize it somehow, it helps us reduce uncertainty because we start to see all the cool things that we've done. You don't see that in the change program status report. Look at our quick wins. Like It's just not natural for humans. Um, and if, and companies that are too afraid to do that and they think it's more about process, I'd argue they don't really need to change anyway. I've seen this so many times, especially with the big banks here in Canada and in telecom, they do their agile transformations that they've been doing for 10 years and nothing's really different. Um, because they don't need to do anything different. Hmm. You know, they just need to make, you know, put window dressing on to make it look like we're innovative and cool and, you know, I get an email a month ago from my bank saying, did you know you can check your balance on your phone? I'm like, I could do that in 1995 by a dial up. <laughs> I had a floppy disk. I dial into my bank and I could do that. You know, this is not innovative. Where is the $40 million you guys are spending in your innovation lab every year? Because I'm getting nothing as a consumer. So they don't really need to change. They can just make it a process and a step-by-step thing. But there's a lot of companies out there that want to make the world a better place and they need stuff like this. So that's really who I'm trying to speak to. And those companies don't need this now, but they, but no one can know when they're going to need it. I mean, no For sure. exactly the year or the, when disruption happens. And yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's a whole good. bunch of, Sorry. yeah. And there's a whole bunch of social proof behind it. You've probably seen this with your clients where, you know, they, they bring you in to help, 
but they go, oh, that'll never work here. And they don't want to listen to you. But as soon as you t connect them to another client or tell them a story, they'll believe that story, but not you. Like that's how social proof works, right? As soon as people see that more people are trying these ideas or they have a story to share, then they're going to listen to the idea. I even get this in workshops. The one you joined where um, uh, you and the two uh, people joined the, uh, the virtual lean coffee, right? After they heard you talking, and the people telling the stories, then it was, oh, okay, so this, this guy must have something. Uh, that's and they're there in the workshop to learn from me. But as soon as it's repeated back, I mean, that's really where, that's where the magic happens with change. So the more we build community and the more we build relationships and networks, the more likely we're to make, we can impact uh, change in a positive way. Virtual lean coffee. So for some people, that's going to sound like oh, right. Mars. So yeah. Yeah, unpack that. Oh, okay. So you get your coffee. <clears throat> and, uh, and you can't see the video. Let's just oh. this mug, Jason. Yeah. What's going on there? Yes, uh, this, is the, uh, this is the My Little Pony mug. Um, so my daughter's a My Little Pony fan, so I've got a My Little Pony coffee mug. So you get your coffee. And you have sticky notes where you write down things that you want to talk about in a particular theme. And then um, the, the attendees of the meeting, they vote on them. And whichever sticky note has the most votes, by put, you put a little dot on the sticky note to vote for it. So whatever question or comment has the most votes, you talk about that for seven minutes. And you only focus on that topic. And then when it's done, you move on to the next topic. So it adds... Uh, uh, instead of just having a random conversation, it adds a bit of certainty about the what you're talking about and where you're going. So uh, the virtual one is uh, basically we just did a video chat, uh, Richard and I, with a couple of attendees from his previous workshop. And then uh, I had about 12 people in the in-person workshop. So we projected Richard up on the wall and, and there we had a chat about what their experience had been since, because I think it had been, what, four or five months from that workshop? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, it was a good timing. And we've got another one of those coming up. So it, it, yeah. It's a good way of, uh, well, again, it's back to stories. It's a great, it's, you're creating a, a space for people to share stories. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. as you say, stories from people who aren't trying to sell or, or can't be perceived to be trying to tell, sell you anything. Yes. So, so that's the, the social proof. proof is, mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I'd say about Lean Coffee is it, it, it provides structure and it, and it helps you. So I think of it as a way of managing energy, not just time. So what I mean by that is because you, because you have the whole room propose topics and then the whole room votes on them, it's a really good way of understanding you know, where the emphasis is, where the momentum is in the room to, to have which conversations mm -hmm. as opposed to when you might have, so you might have done the exact, the exact same process and gone to all the people in the, uh, in the meeting beforehand and built an agenda but that may have been a week or two weeks before the meeting actually happens. You get to that moment at the start of the meeting and maybe everything's changed and these people aren't, mm -hmm. aren't, um, aren't so interesting. And then the second issue you have with traditional meetings is that maybe the guy who's paid the most his or her agenda items top of the list, and that might be yeah. appropriate and it may be a problem. So the lean coffee democratizes it a bit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So that's Lean Change. So what's next? You've got another book, is that right? You is that in the works? You're thinking about it? Yeah, there's content for a whole bunch of uh, different books. So there's going to be a, um, a part two, uh, which is going to be more of a 
story-based book, I guess. So it's going to be a collection of uh, stories of people who have been using the ideas, a um, bunch of pictures, visual facilitation, um, more art side of change topics is going to be one. It, uh, it's probably going to just be Lean Change Management 2 or something. Uh, I'm not exactly sure naming and stuff like that, but it, it's going to be uh, what's happened since the first one. So uh, what's... Uh, the same and different about the commission um, since that change happened. The commission and explain that. That's the name of the company in the book. So uh, to protect the innocent, um, let's change the name. Yeah. And uh, the other one is going to be uh, something called agile everywhere, which is uh, when I was doing, going through my diaries and photos for lean change management Two, I realized I've got 10 years of stories about, Agile and marketing and agile for running companies and all the stuff uh, that I think would be good stories. Because um, I keep telling these stories through various conference talks and stuff. And I thought, well, why not turn this into a, turn this into a book as well? Um, so uh, those two for sure. You said the art side of change. Is that right? Did I hear you right? Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of when we're talking about the seesaw yeah. and, you know, feeling your way through it. A lot of it is, uh, it's more art than it is science. You know, our brains really want a structured method and a step-by-step linear progression through change. But deep down, I think we all know it never works that way. So it's more about how to, how to be okay with letting go as the change person. Um, uh, especially if you're coming from more of a project management background, I see a lot of uh, change managers that come from a place of control or process uh, because that's what they've done their whole career. Um, they don't know how to work another way, but they want to because they know it doesn't work. Um, and that's their words, not mine. I've had so many people that come from that background say, uh, you know, the old way, it just doesn't work. It's never worked. We've just fooled ourselves into thinking that if we have a good structure and a good plan and a good process, everything works out okay, but it never works that way. So it's to try to, to, to give more stories, to, to let people experiment and try new things with a bunch of social proof from other companies that have had success with it. Um, and, and also thinking about getting away from these big binary, the change worked or didn't work type of thinking. You know, any company that's going through a digital transformation for five years, you can't say it worked or it didn't. That's just ridiculous. There's thousands of victories every week in a lot of these companies. And then they just sort of uh, get sucked into all the glut of crap you see on LinkedIn, which is everything is doom and gloom and every company is terrible and every leader is an idiot and all this type of stuff. And I think a lot of companies are doing a lot better than we give them credit for as, you know, kind of armchair um, consultants a lot of the times. So why not celebrate that? Why not show a lot of really great stories um, that will help people realize they, they, they are doing a lot better. So uh, a celebration. Sure. Why not? Where change is working. And... Yeah. Yeah. The more negative people will say, well, you're ignoring the hard problems. No, not really. Oh, companies are dying a lot faster, so it's not working. Well, that's just the nature of technology, right? There's, you know, my, 13-year-old has a YouTube channel that's worth almost 20,000 bucks. So he's building his own business, you know, and he's been doing this for a couple of years. So it's pretty easy for anybody to create 
a new company or a service or something, the barrier of entry is pretty low. So of course companies are going to die faster. That's just the way technology has shaped the world nowadays. So don't let all of that negative stuff sort of uh, um, try to force you into changing. Great companies evolve. Great leadership has existed for centuries, and it will continue to exist after this kind of wave of agile and innovation uh, is labeled something different. So, mm. you mentioned leadership there. I know you mm. collaborated recently on a presentation, time timeless leadership. Yeah. What was the message there? Well, it was a lot of the stuff you see you know, especially on LinkedIn or social media is take some of that with a grain of salt because uh, the world of consulting and, and agile coaching is just as cutthroat as, you know, the door-to-door salespeople in the seventies is that when you need to make money, you need to create watered down certifications and all this kind of stuff to, to draw attention to yourself. Um, it, but those, you know, those uh, card tricks and pony tricks, today's leaders don't need that stuff. There's, it's existed forever. All of the leadership models that we in the Agile community have kind of stolen and remarketed have existed for hundreds of years. So this session was about going back through the history of business, basically, and showing when these ideas were created and, and examples of, uh, you know, ransom olds in the late 1800s who invented the assembly line. People think it was Henry Ford, but it wasn't. Uh, it was the guy who created Oldsmobile. So he was the first person to, to do that. Henry Ford made it better. He just added the automated conveyor belt uh, to it, and he gets all the credit for it. But some of the, the things that these leaders did to grow and evolve their businesses, that's what leaders do. They don't need a, a, you know, a new model or a new approach because of this new digital world. Some things don't change. And great leaders have great relationships with everyone in their organizations. They know how to talk to people. They're very relatable. They see the bigger picture. One example that we told was um, uh, when the auto bailout happened in the U.S. Uh, Ford didn't need a bailout, but they lobbied for it because Alan Mulally at the time knew that the ecosystem was bigger than him and his company. So if he doesn't lobby for his two peer companies to get this bailout, you know, there's an 80% uh, supplier overlap for those three companies. So he knows if I don't help these two guys when I don't need the help, when I need the help, they won't back me up. Hmm. You're not going to learn that in a two day certified leadership course, right? Yeah. Like it's just, he's going to be able to give you some insight on that. Yes. Oh, you should just be more agile with your blah. I'm like, come on. You know, it, it, it's, it's been around forever. So a lot of it was just sort of, uh, trying to show people who get duped by a lot of these quick fix schemes that come out of the, um, especially the agile world is pretty guilty of this. Um, there's other places to look. Let's stop and look around instead of always looking to invent something new. Yeah. So what comes to mind? So Lao Tzu, he, he, several centuries back, the, the, the great leader is he of whom the people say we did it ourselves. Yes. Servant leadership in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. But we need to relearn these. So, but there's still still value in these people reframing, recommunicating these these stories and these ideas. 
Yeah, yeah. If the, if it's being uh, attributed to the past, so if it's uh, and the thing I take objection with is when it's thought of look what look what we invented or it's something new. It's it's not. It's it's uh, let's stop and look around at the things that are already there and amplify the good ones by not making it more confusing. I mean, if you look at agile nowadays, my God, I couldn't imagine being a CIO in a company trying to figure out what to do. Like fifteen years ago. There was two books and, you know, 40 people around the world that knew about this stuff. And nowadays, if you Google it, there's 10,000 different frameworks and tools and methods. What do you, where do you go? Where do you start? Yeah. So let's not keep adding to the pile. Uh, Jerry Weinberg, who's authored 60 some odd books, who's kind of uh, known as one of the great agile thinkers, when asked about what his greatest contribution to software programming was, he said, I didn't invent a new language. So don't add to the complexity. Stop and look around. But says the guy, you're about to write two more books. So how do you square that? Because there are going to be more stories and ideas. They're not going to be, here's a, here's a new model or a new method or a new framework. It's going to be, um, here's what this company did um, to make positive change. Here's what worked for them. Here's how they morphed it and tweaked it and uh, contextualized it and made it work in their environment. Yeah. So that's your professional life. You're a drummer. Is that right? Yep. Yes. Tell us more about that. You're in a band? Yep. Yep. So uh, we are a five-piece band, um, female singer, uh, playing all original songs. So um, we, uh, uh, our band is called Clever Weapon. So you can, if you search that, you'll find us on Facebook and Reverb Nation and, and, and everywhere with a couple of songs and videos and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, I used to be in a band a long time ago, then life got in the way for 20 years. And then now life is, you know, got to a point where I can spend a little bit more free time. The kids are older now, so they kind of do their own thing. So I've got a little bit of extra free time to spend. And, uh, I have been playing in my basement for a while just to like get the skills back up and stuff like that. And then there's a site called bandmix.ca or .com or something. And it's just a freelancer musician site. I thought, you know what? I really need to get off my butt and do something. So I recorded a couple of songs, put up a profile. And then, uh, the bass player for this band reached out and said, Oh, we're looking for a drummer. Do you want to audition? And I said, sure. And then uh, a couple of days later, he emailed me back and said, oh, well, we had a guy come in and it was a good fit and it clicked really well. So we're not looking anymore. And um, then six months later, uh, he emailed me again and he said, it didn't really work out with the other guy. Do you want to come back and audition again? Because I recorded a video playing along to one of their songs uh, just to, to show them. And um, yeah, I went and did that and it was just an instant fit. Songs are fantastic. Uh, chemistry was was there uh the um yeah and it just went from there so we've played a, a couple of shows now and we're in the middle of recording our um first album mm-hmm. yeah. any of your songs on the album no because theirs are way better i've got a couple of riffs and stuff like we we share ideas through our dropbox and stuff like that but they're yeah the the three guys who write uh, the song just yeah, the songs are awesome. 
and then that started so you did that started when you were a kid was yeah it, was it music and hockey yes yeah i started playing drums i think in probably grade 10 i think so what's that in uh you're 14 or 15 okay. I was, yeah I, yeah i was about 15 or 16 i think i started playing uh well I, first i started as guitar and i was lefty so it was just natural to play that way. And then it's it's so, well, first, if you play that way, people are going to compare you to Jimi Hendrix. So, And it's really hard to find guitars. So I had a right-handed guitar I would string upside down to play uh, that way. Um, and then uh, I just realized I wasn't really good. So I flipped it the other way and then taught myself how to play with a, you know, with a right-handed guitar and then um, uh, got into drums instead. And then played with a couple of bands in high school and, and then moved up here and sold everything for school. And yeah. Is it a musical f family or you just broke out? And, um, I, no one else in my family played. So I don't know where the, the music part came from because both my kids are, are really musical. My wife, and she, uh, she sings as well. Uh, she's got a good voice, so um, uh, I don't know where it came from from my side of the family or hers either, because I don't. None of her family sings or plays any instruments, but yeah. Okay. And you'll make it. So you're, you're going to have the album as a tour in the offing. Uh, we're going to do some local places here. Um, so we did a, we did our first show was a week after I joined the band. So we did all original songs. We did 13 songs or something like that. And, uh, and, and people were blown away. There's a couple of video clips up there. And, uh, when people learned that we literally practiced once for that show, um, they were totally surprised. So that really speaks to the quality of the four others. Because you know, I made a ton of mistakes, right? It's hard to learn that many songs in that short period of time. And they covered them up pretty well. So it was, yeah. And are they following you? Because I know mostly they follow the drummer, but in some bands it's if they follow. Yeah, me, me and the bass player. So the bass player, yeah, the bass player is, uh, um, he's, uh, he did a lot of cueing. So a lot of, it's funny how much, being in a band is, is similar to how things happen in our organizations, right? There's a sort of way that you feel your way around for what's happening and stuff. And he kind of knew if I got lost in a spot uh, and he would count in, you know, a gap in a song or, you know, he would do the head motions or he would do some things to make sure that we all knew what was going to happen next type of thing. If I missed a cue or something like that. So uh, um, that was, that was really cool. Yeah, that reminds me of a line I think, well, I got from you. I don't know if you, if you originated, but the change is a social movement. Yeah. That's something you talk about. And it sounds, so yeah, I see the same metaphor in the way that a band operates, right? There's, it, it's, we, I think you said this before, we think that change happens because the CEO says this or whoever it is who's empowered says, well, we're heading to this place. And really change emerges in much of the same way that a, something might emerge in a band, you know, somebody somewhere takes some initiative and then there's a, then they follow and, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's more like jazz than it is like, I don't know, steering a ship or something. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very much distributed leadership and what a non cool way to talk about being in a rock band, but <laughs> it's exactly how it works, right? There's, there's certain parts where, you know, Eric, uh, one of the guitar players has to cue us in. There's sometimes Sherry, the singer has to do something. So we're kind of in the right spot of the song or James or, or Shane or me, or just the way you count certain things and look at each other. And it's, uh, and I think all of that, um, stuff, helps change agents right the the more you do kind of creative uh whether you're painting or whether you're building models or building lego or whatever it is if you're doing something creative it just unlocks a whole different um vibe about how you approach change as a change person you're not coming in as a robot with a project schedule and all the stuff that you do need some of that stuff too but a lot of the times it's more creative than we we tend to think so the more you kind of expose yourself to other non-business stuff and, you know, be human, have a normal life, play sports, do whatever, those lessons help you bring organizations forward. So, And uh, Steve Jobs used to talk about, talk about that. I mean, he's something along the lines of, you know, I've got a, a coder who also writes poetry. Yeah. Versus a, a, a coder who's just an engineer. I'll, t- I'll take a poet. And uh, yeah, he had that message of bringing liberal arts into into tech organizations. Yeah. And uh, yeah, look how, look how disruptive they were. Mm-hmm. And it helps to bring that into your organizations, especially with your teams. Talk about the other skills that people have. You know, do, do kind of um, uh, personal maps, which is a, a mind map of you as a human. You put that stuff on a wall with your team and then you start to ask questions about other people. You know, I found uh, one workshop I did, one of the guys who came um, uh, is an environmental activist. So he lobbies the government for, you know, electric cars and stuff like that. And I've known him forever and I just had no idea uh, about that. So uh, it just, you know, brings a whole other dimension, you know, uh, uh, to change. And why is that, do you think? I, I think because we get to see people as people. We often, uh, as change people, uh, blame people um, for resisting change or we blame people who are maybe have an, a different mindset than us or they see things differently and we just think they're stupid or they don't get it. But once we see them as people, we start to understand and have empathy for, for their perspective and their, their view on things. And we still might not agree with it, um, but at least we can have a reasoned conversation around it if we see them as a person and not just as, uh, you know, some change resistor in a spreadsheet type of thing. On that, who's the most difficult personality you've dealt with? Hmm. People who are like me, you know, I'm a self-professed control freak. Uh, and sometimes I hold on to my ideas too tightly. And especially when I was younger. So people that would have very, you know, kind of strong opinions that were opposite to what my view was, was difficult to work with. And um, I've mellowed out a little more now. Uh, or wishy-washiness. So I'm very much biased towards action. Um, you know, change happens when somebody does something. That's always the way it's been. Uh, and sometimes I take that more to the extreme end. So um, I work with a lot of coaches. So a lot of the times, you know, um, if there's an event or something that happens, if you're in a group of coaches, somebody will say, well, how do we feel about this? And that drives me crazy because I want to hear what you think about it. 
right? If we are uh, coaches and we know that, uh, you know, um, we're non-judgmental, you can tell me what you think and I'm not going to react in a negative way, but don't give me this, uh, you know, how do we feel about this basically says I have an opinion, but I'm too afraid to tell you. So just tell me what it is. So that drives me nuts if I'm in a, a, a group of people that is very wishy-washy or not um, wanting to act like to an extreme end. Um, but, you know, I've, I've learned to recognize my symptoms and inner feelings of when that control freakness is coming out and I can sort of head it off at the pass nowadays. What you said about jumping in really resonates. Mm -hmm. I've got that bias as well. Mm -hmm. People want to do analysis and think it through. I'm like, yeah. yeah. So we, you talked a bit about you know changing organisations and how you work with with others. Can you tell me like one change you've made about yourself that's made a, a big difference? Um. Hmm. Uh, more balance probably. So spending, spending more time on non-work things, I think, uh, has helped quite a bit. Um, um, what else? Probably being more vocal because I'm usually fairly quiet person unless it's something that I'm really passionate about. So, I think uh, um, speaking up more if I am frustrated or angry or confused or whatever it is and just being okay with it. Normally I'll just be, you know, I'll just close myself off and go do something else. But now it's, it's trying to be a little bit more uh, kind of open in those types of scenarios. And um, when you work for yourself too, you're, you're alone a lot. So doing more social things you know, just going to hang out with people for coffee or going to a club or, or, or doing something like that just to, uh, uh, to get out of the house more and, and interact a bit more. So those, those things are probably the most things that I'm working on, I would say. And where do you think the, the, the vocal point comes from? I've definitely experienced that. I just need to be more vocal. Where, did you uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's more things like, you know, uh, if, if something's not going well at a, at a client site or, um, even, you know, something at home, um, it is being okay with saying, this is my view and how I feel about it. Let's talk as opposed to just closing off and going, eh, whatever, who cares? Yep. Um, is there a moment? that you can think of where you've had a, a major a breakdown and, and, a, and an associated breakthrough? Is there, has there been a, a low point or a turning point for you? Uh, a couple come to mind. So one personal, one, eh, I guess, kind of personal slash more business related. Uh, personal one would be um, we, were, uh, we were coming back from a trip driving with family in a really, really bad storm. So like hundred kilometer winds and stuff like that. And that triggered, uh, uh, anxiety with, uh, with my daughter. So, 
anxiety is something it's always kind of there there's usually an event that brings it out and for her it was a, it was storms and high winds so you know there'd be days when if the wind is 40 50 kilometers she's in our basement under a blanket not wanting to go to school or look out a window uh so we were doing um we were going to um therapy for it to talk about it and we did a family session and we were talking about uh just why we were there what we wanted to do and uh i think the the breakdown part was you know with having two kids with anxiety and uh one with uh ADHD and anxiety um just feeling like you did something wrong as the parent so there was a pretty low point of thinking, well, what did I do to contribute to this? And you think of all those events when you got angry and you yelled at your kids, which everybody does, but you're not allowed to say it anymore because you'll go to jail. Um, but <laughs> you just, you get that feeling that, oh, there's all these little events that, you know, when he spilt milk on the carpet and I yelled at him, that contributed to all this. And it's absolutely not the case. It's all genetic in the way the brain works. Uh, so just feeling like a total failure and just breaking down. And I remember it was the first time my kids ever saw me cry and their, the look on their faces were just, Oh my God, this is serious. But that was good because it was a good turning point for us to talk about this type of stuff. Um, and, uh, it helped quite a bit. So it was basically, uh, you know, society trains you to act and behave in a certain way and, you know, don't be yourself be the best representative of yourself in public and not speak your mind and not do the things that you believe are right. Uh, and that helped me help teach my kids that it's okay to be yourself and to do what you think is right. So a couple of weeks ago, my daughter actually uh, saw a, a few kids bullying this smaller kid and it was the, the younger brother of a kid. So they might've just been horsing around, but she marched right over to them. She's like four feet tall, tiny, and marches over to these grade eight kids and uh, tells them to stop doing it. And, you know, and they say some mean things to her and she says, well, I'm an ambassador of this caring program and you're not supposed to do like, she just no fear. Right. And she marched right into the office and told uh, uh, the principal about it without any fear of, you know, retribution from the other kids. Whereas we're always taught we should do those things but it's sort of the unwritten rule that you don't because you get labeled as a tattletale or you get labeled as this and that. And she's like, no, screw this. They're doing the wrong thing. And I'm going to speak up. So, uh, that was pretty cool. And so it's, it's events like that, that helped. Right. You being yourself. <clears throat> more courage. Yeah. It makes it okay for them. Model the behavior and then it makes it okay for them and let them know that, uh, that we've got their back. So if anything happens, uh, we'll back them up because they did the right thing. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've got, I've got 13 month year old twin boys. Mm. You know, this is uh, yeah, a powerful conversation. And will I have the courage to, to be open <clears throat> emotionally and how will I find that? Yes. It's different for men. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You're the protector, right? And like, you've got to be the strong one. You've got to put on the brave face. You're not allowed to do this, that, and the other because you're a man. And it's, yeah, it just, it doesn't, it really doesn't matter when you, when you think about the big picture. Hmm. And, and of course, it's, and it's always an and, and, and there's value in fortitude and managing mm -hmm. emotions and there's value in letting go and having the emotions come out. It's, it's all valuable. Right? It, it, it's, 
it's when we get stuck on thinking that that one's right and one's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's what that brings me to another question here is, so I, I think that one of the ways in which society in general and organizations is changing is, is there is this, this sense of interactions between people are becoming more open. Like it's, it's more okay to talk about sexuality, to talk about feelings, to talk about mm-hmm. a sense of identity and belonging and these, these, Topics that, um, yeah, well, maybe, yeah, explored in, in 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 small pockets are starting to become more more mainstream as a as a as a set of conversations. What do you see in in the way that culture is changing within organisations more broadly, and 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 how do you see this playing out in the future? Uh, in, in organizations, I think um, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Gibbons, he wrote the Science Successful Organizational Change. We had a chat and he was talking about how, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't talk about feelings and vulnerability in the boardroom. You'd get laughed out of the room or happiness. And he says, nowadays, because everybody's buying into this VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, uh, complex and ambiguous world that we live in nowadays, you can't not talk about that stuff. So now you need to be a little, you know, you need to be like yourself. You can't just put on your business suit and, and close all that stuff off. So it's, and a lot of the stories you hear, like what Starbucks did, for example, closing down all their stores to do, um, to do quote unquote racial bias training, right? They closed 8,000 stores. Um, stuff like that would just be unheard of 10 years ago. But now we, we need to have these conversations to move forward as a, as a society and stop thinking that there's a, you know, mom stays in the kitchen and dad works at the tire factory and we've got two kids in a station wagon and a white picket fence and everything's perfect. The world ain't like that never has been, but now we can sort of talk about how things are real and um, how that runs our organizations. When we, when we accept people for their differences instead of, you know, stereotyping people and, putting them in their little box. Hmm. Embracing the messiness. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. And sometimes it's a process, you know, a company will bring in a happiness index chart tool to see if their people are happy and they measure it and they manage it like a process, which is crazy. But then after a while it bridges them into, you know, uh, making small little cultural shifts uh, over time. And there's ton, you know, Google happiness index, and you'll probably find tons of stories about companies that are bringing in more of these, uh, you know, fluffier ways of running their organizations compared to just making it about process and rules and stuff like that. And that's the thing. <clears throat> it's the, it's the conversations that they generate that, that's important. Yeah. Rather than the tool or the process. Yeah. Okay, anything else we've missed you'd like to talk about that's in your life right now? Hmm. Um, I went to uh, uh, a really good workshop. It was nice to actually go to a workshop instead of running one for a change. And it was a three-day 
transformational leader workshop. So if, uh, people who are familiar with Michael Spade, if uh, people who are listening are in the agile community. So Michael Spade and Michelle Madore, um, ran this workshop and, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is around how, uh, how transformation happens. And it's not a process or science, but there's a lot of spiritual, uh, which that word scares a lot of people. There's a lot of, uh, different elements to how change works. Um, <clears throat> and, um, we dove really deep into, uh, your own personal leadership style and, uh, where you want to work on, what are your strengths and stuff like this. And they had this big physical wheel on the floor that had all these different types of attributes. And we stood around it trying to figure out, you know, after this, where do we want to get to? And, um, one of the people in the opening circle said, uh, that she wanted to try to be more vulnerable. And that triggered something with me because my brain was trying to logically think about how to move from one step to another step. And I remember the last coach I had said, I need to think more with my heart and less with my head. So I told that story. And then by the third day I said, well, by the end of, you know, this, I said, I, I think I'm just. I'm actually pretty happy with how things are going and where I'm at right now. And I'm okay with not knowing where I want to get to at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helped me actually think more with the heart and less with the head. So we don't always have to feel like we need to improve something. We can be pretty happy with where we're at. And I, I am with where I'm at right now in business and in, in personal life. So there's lots of little tiny things I want to improve, but generally speaking, it's going pretty good overall. So, um, for anybody out there, especially now in the social media days, everybody's posting on Facebook about their new car, their new TV, and look how awesome everything is. And it's, it's not reality. I mean, everybody goes home and, you know, there's no dinner and everybody's cranky and just be okay with it. Just live your life and don't worry about everything having to be perfect all the time. Hmm. I'm not. And, and I'm getting there and not knowing, and you don't have to know exactly what's coming next. What, what are the steps? Yeah. And other people's perception too. You know, I, I blog on my medium site a lot about these, these personal stories and people are like, should you be doing that? You know, like you've got this professional network and book and stuff. And do you really want people to know that you're, you have a kid who has ADHD and I'm like, who cares? <laughs> Yeah, we've been to therapy. So what? A lot of people have been to therapy. Why not write about it? Because then now it makes it okay for somebody else to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's healthy. Anybody who's ever had professional coaching knows that it's hugely valuable just to even have two or three, you know, personal coaching sessions with a life coach. It's, it's amazing experience. Do that every few years and write about it. It just, it makes it okay for other people who are a little, might be too afraid um, to do it. And it's not embarrassing at all. I think it's healthy. Mm, you're giving me mm. something to think about because I do therapy every week, pretty much. Mm. And I, I reference it from time to time when I write, but I don't write about it a lot. This is, yeah, this is interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like you've really embraced sharing that as you go through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the shadow to that is what is is the oversharing, and the and the constant sort of emotional outpourings, right? So I suppose there's the yeah, yeah. It's it's minimal. It's minimal. I wrote a post called 28 minutes, which was uh, you do that. I yeah, just, just yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry, go on, you were saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. It's always just in pockets when it feels right to talk about that stuff. So not constant, but yeah, yeah, this, I wrote this post 28 minutes, which was the time it took to convince my daughter to get out of the house on a really windy day once. So I come downstairs and she's huddled in a ball under a blanket, not wanting to, to leave the house. And I just told the story of how that came to be. And it went out there and it just, cause there's nothing you can do. And being a control freak, it's pretty hard, right? You can't, I can't pick her up and throw her out the front door. You have to coach them through it. And back in my day, it was, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and your dad would <laughs> kick you in the ass and throw you out the door. And now you can't do that <laughs> anymore, right? So, uh, yeah. so that the, uh, the writing stems back from AYE, actually, where Johanna Rothman, uh, she did a reinventing yourself session. And I said, I think I kind of want to do what you guys do. I mean, you, you do these awesome workshops and you, you, uh, you do this, that, and the other and write books and blah, blah, blah. And she said, just start writing. Because when you start writing, you'll figure it out. Mm. Don't worry about the method of how you write. Don't worry what you write about. Just start writing and make it public. And you'll figure it out. Mm. Took 10 years, but it, you know, still, it, it works. It's uh, diaries. Diaries are great. I've always had diaries with every client just to write thoughts and stuff. And um, it just helps you formulate your, your, how you view the world. Hmm. which is pretty healthy. <clears throat> yeah, Tim Ferriss says the fastest way to improve your thinking is, is writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I journal almost every night, thinking, mm -hmm. about my thinking and, and just my, my emotional health in general. Yeah. <clears throat> but for you, it sounds like it's, there's also something about making more of that public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a partner on LinkedIn at one of the big four firms who wrote a post about his anxiety and how he dealt with it. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a sort of 2018 moment, right? I mean, I think this is even three or four years. I can't imagine ago. I can't imagine that. Yeah. Hmm. So I think, I think it's fascinating to think forward about how, what organizations will look like. Um, certainly when my kids or even your kids start to, to look for jobs. Mm -hmm. Anything else? We done? No, I'm spent now. I think we're good. <laughs> we got deep. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed it. Jason, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having thank me. You. Appreciate it.